Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. You have your Bibles turned to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I know you think we're never going to get out of Revelation chapter 1, but we're getting out of there today. Amen? And I hope that you're grasping and holding on to these truths because Revelation 1 sets the foundation for all of the book. Even today, it'll give the outline of the book of Revelation. Here in Revelation chapter 1, I want to begin reading in verse number 17. 17. What he's, we've seen already and saw last week is what he saw. Remember what he saw? What John felt. You remember that? What he felt. And, and, and then we're going to talk about what he hears. What he hears. What did he hear Jesus say? These are important words. Listen to what it says. Verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are And the things which shall take place after these things. We saw, he saw Jesus in all of his glory last week, remember? He said he was likened to the Son of Man like the Jesus I knew. But man, he begins to describe him in all of his glory. His face is shining like the sun. And how he's dressed up in that long robe and that golden girdle across his chest. He describes his brass feet as they would trample upon sin. All that he saw, it was such a great experience that he says he fell at his feet as a dead man. And then he felt the hand of Jesus come and touch him. That hand that he had seen touch so many other people. Now that he's gone through those three experiences, it is what he hears. The first thing that John hears is a familiar theme. Here's what he says in verse 17. Do not be afraid. Those are the first words that come out of the mouth of Jesus. And those words are a common theme throughout the New Testament. A common theme in the ministry of Jesus. Something that I'm sure that John heard Jesus say time and time again. And it's recorded in the word many, many times when it said, do not be afraid. Let's look at a few of those illustrations. One that you don't have is Luke 1, 13 up on the board. Luke 1, 13 is when the angel came to Zacharias when he's telling about John the Baptist being born to him. And he says, be not afraid when he appeared to him while he was burning incense. In Luke 1, 30, it's whenever Mary was approached by the angel. And whenever she saw the angel who's about to tell her that she's going to have the birth, she's going to give birth to Jesus. The first thing the angel says to her is, do not be afraid. Then when the shepherds are out in the field watching their flock by night and Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, what's the first thing the angels say to them? Do not be afraid. 
Then you see Jesus, he gets in the boat with Simon Peter. And whenever Simon Peter sees this great catch, he realizes that this is more than a man, that he's the son of God. He says, get away from me. You're a ho- I'm, a, I'm a sinful man and you're a holy man. And Jesus, the first words he said to Peter were, do not be afraid. Then you find that whenever Jairus had his daughter that was at a point of death and he invites Jesus to come. And when Jesus comes and they tell him, some messengers come and tell Jairus, leave the master alone. Your daughter has died. And Jesus turned to Jairus and said, do not be afraid. Just keep on believing. Then you see when he says to all believers in Luke 12, 32, he says to every believer, do not be afraid. That's a common theme. Why do you think that's important? Because fear is something that all of us experience. Look at me. Fear is something that all of us experience. Even we men are fearful. Not me. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. Every one of us are fearful about things. Fear is a part of our experience. Fear is a part of a life that it is dealing with sin and living in a sinful world. Let, let's talk about a few of those things. Do you ever have fear of life and death? What about a fear of sickness or of having an accident? You ever sit in that doctor's waiting room and wonder what's wrong with you and what they're going to tell me? You ever had somebody on a trip and you're concerned about whether they're going to have an accident or whether you get that call? You ever had that kind of fear? What, what about the fear of success and failure, men? We always, always want to be successful, don't we? What about stepping out and you might be a failure? What about the fear of the uncertainty of the future? What about the fear of finances? What about the fear of our, for ourselves or for people we love? Sometimes we're, we're not as afraid about what might happen to me as I'm afraid about what happens to somebody I care about. Amen? What's going to happen? to those people what's going to what's going to take place or what about in the, in the sense of of john john is he's standing before a holy god and he has a sense of fear all of us are going to experience fear do something for me men and women alike now i'm watching i want you to turn to that person next to you maybe it's your family member say you know sometimes i'm afraid turn around do it say go ahead do it you're not lying when you do it if you didn't do it you're a liar Fear is something that we all experience sometimes in our life. But do you know what Jesus comes along and says? He says to John and he says to us, it says, you do not have to be afraid. That's one of the greatest things about coming to know Jesus and and who Jesus is and, and who Jesus is about to say that he is to John. Knowing Jesus means that you can have victory over fear. It means that there's a basis for why you can have victory in the midst of it. Fear will creep in. Fear is there. Fear is a reality. But you can have victory over that instead of fear paralyzing you in your life. So he, he looks at John and all that John's seen. And he says the first thing. He says, listen, do not be afraid. Today, I don't know what your experience is right now. I don't know what you're going through right now. Maybe today the word you need to get from Jesus is no other word than that word right there. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart and said, you don't have to be afraid. Whatever that you're facing, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're contemplating, whatever you're, you're, um, it's got a hold of your mind and your heart, 
Maybe the Lord wants you here today. You don't have to be afraid. You do not have to be afraid. Well, what else does he say? Do not be afraid. He says, here who's I am. I am the first and the last. That had been said about him over in verse 8 when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. You know that Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And what that basically saying means is, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning, and I am the end, and I'm everything in between. And when Jesus is talking to John, remember, John walked with him three years he loved him. He was dear to him. But whenever he's seen him now, he's seen him in all of his glory. And he's wanting to remind John of something. He's wanting to remind John that I am the first and the last. That can only be said about Almighty God. You can't say that about yourself. No one else can say that. It's not appropriate except that that would be said about God. And here's the Son of God, Jesus himself, saying to John and to everybody who's listening, I am Almighty God. I am the fullness of God. Everything there is about God, I am God. And when he says that he's the first, he means this, that he existed before anything else and everything that does exist, he created. You got that in your heart and your mind? There was out there an eternity God and nothing else. And then God brings about creation and everything that there is, he has created. I don't know where you fall in all this evolution stuff and all that. If you think that there's a big bang out there that happened, it will bless your heart. You know what God said? I just believe what he said. Jesus said, no, I created it. I had my hand on it, and I brought it into existence. And the reason it exists is because I did it. I'm the one who's in charge of that. And everything that is there, I created. Look what he says in John 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 3, when he introduced Jesus there. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Or what Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 16. For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created by him and are created for him. You got it? Whether in heaven or on earth, whether powers or dominions or any spiritual thing, angels, demons, even Satan himself, everything has been created by Jesus. Because he was in the beginning and he was first. And that means this also, my friend, on an intimate way. He created you. He created you. He knew in eternity past that he was going to create you and that you would exist in this world right now. You are no accident. I don't care what your brother and sister told you. You are no accident. God, God created you. And brought you into this world. And he created you for a purpose and a plan. And the ultimate thing he created you for is to have a relationship with him. He created you to have a relationship with him. And he loves you so much that he's doing everything to enable you to have that relationship with him. But the first thing you need to know is where you came from. And where you came from is him. 
He is eternal God. But that's not all. He said, I'm the first, but I'm what? I'm also the last. I am the last. I will be forevermore. I will be forevermore. When all the kings of the earth who think they're powerful sleep and turn to dust and return to the ground, their power has all passed away, Jesus will live, abide, and reign forever and ever. Isn't that true? How many people have thought they would rule the world? Alexander Great thought he would rule the world. Napoleon Bonaparte thought he would rule the world. The Caesars of Rome thought they would rule the world. But every one of them have turned to dust. But the one who is alive forevermore and the one who lasts and the one who is of all eternity is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is first and he is last. So you can rest in him. Amen? But that's not all he said. He said, he was the first and the last. And what else? I am the living one. I am the one living right now. Jesus says, I am alive. Now, it's interesting how he had said that previous, and I didn't point it out, but I'll show you something. Look over in verse 8 of chapter 1. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, that's kind of interesting the way Jesus said that, right? Because he didn't say that in a, in a normal chronological way of phrasing something. You know, there, there are a number of ways to, to be able to put things in sequence order. Usually, we would use a chronological way. That chronological means it follows a linear path. If something were put chronological, he would have said, who was, who is, and who is to come, right? That would be chronological, from past, present, future. Or you can do it in reverse order. He could have said, who is to come, who is, and who was. Those are all chronological order. But whenever Jesus identifies himself, he doesn't do it in a chronological way. He does it in a psychological way in order to give an emphasis to it. He said this, I don't want you to focus on the fact that I was or the fact that I'm coming again. The most important thing for you is that I am right now. And therefore, he puts that first. Who is? Jesus is. He's not a dead Savior. He is living right now. He's not just the coming reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. He is right now. Which means that you and I have the opportunity of having a relationship with Jesus Christ right now because he is living. He's living, existing, and in relationship with all who will come. He is the living one. He is the living one. I don't know about you, but that old song, he lives, he lives. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives where? Within my heart. Man, I know that Jesus is alive. I talk to him every day. I know that Jesus is alive. Whenever fear swells up in my heart, he comes along and says, hey, you don't have to be afraid. All right? He is there and he's living. And he wants you and me to know that he is the living Lord God. He is the living Savior. 
But he also tells us something else. He's not just living. What does it say? I was. I was. What does it say in your Bible? I was what? I was dead. I was dead. Do you realize that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died? He didn't just faint. He died. He wasn't just knocked out and put in a tomb and he woke back up and, and now he's okay. He died. And he says, I was dead. Why is that important? Because he is pronouncing the reality that he is the sacrificial lamb. He died sacrificially in order that you and I might have salvation. If Jesus had not died and paid the price of death on the cross, you and I could not be saved. You and I would have no hope. We'd be dependent on our own righteousness. And I'm telling you, I wouldn't make it. Our only hope is that there was a lamb that came that died who was the perfect lamb of God. And that's not a lamb that was grown by men. It's the lamb that was sent by God Almighty, the Lamb of God. And Jesus said, I was dead, a sacrificial death. That's an amazing statement that the Son of God died for the atonement of sin. You realize God died? The Son of God in, in human flesh died to pay the price for our sin. Nobody could take his life, he said it, but he what? He laid it down. Nobody could take the life of Jesus, but he laid it down. Why? He laid it down for you and me because he cares about us. But did he stay dead? No, because he said he's alive, right? He says, and I am alive. What? This is a precious word. I'm alive. How? Forevermore. I am alive forevermore. Jesus did not stay in a grave. He came forth from the grave. And when he came forth from that grave, he says, I'm alive and death can never touch me. Death can never touch Jesus again. Because he's a die, he died and he's alive forevermore. The resurrected son of God can never taste death again. Never taste death again. But the wonderful truth about that is this. Because of what Jesus did, neither will any person who received the life from Jesus ever taste of the second death, but rather will experience life forevermore. The second death, what? well, that's death, the payment of sin and hell. It's not just this physical death, but that death that Jesus paid as he suffered on the cross And he went to the deepest, darkest pits of hell to pay the price for your sin and my sin. And he went there because that's where I deserve to go. But because Jesus died there and paid the price for my sin, it says that if I believe that what he did, he did for me, I don't ever have to go there. And therefore, I don't have to worry about the second death. And the one that you don't want to experience is the second death. The first death is whenever we just stop breathing here and we go to what God is prepared for us that's going to be a twinkle of an eye that's going to be a blink for you and me and we're going to wake up in glory and what an experience that's going to be we're going to say man praise god i've been wanting to get here this is going to be a wonderful experience we will never taste of the second death because jesus is alive forevermore and he gives that gift of eternal life and life forevermore to anyone who believes in him 
Praise God. Man, praise God for that. I don't have to face the second death. Wait a minute. If you're here and you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you're here and you haven't accepted his gift on the cross, you haven't accepted his salvation for your soul. You haven't believed that when he died on that cross, he died for you. And when he went to the pits of hell to pay the price for sin, he paid your price. If you haven't done that, you need to give your heart to Jesus today. You need to accept what he's done for you. Because you do not want to experience the second death. And you don't have to. You don't have to. Jesus paid the price for you. Look what else it says. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Listen now. That's what it says. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Wow. Jesus said that what he did, whenever he died on the cross and he was resurrected, he said what he did, he went and he secured those keys of death and hell. He secured the keys. Now, now he has the keys. He's in possession of the keys of death and of hell. Now, here's the question. Who had them before that? Who had, who had the keys? Well, it tells you. In Hebrews 2, verse 14, it'll be up on the screen. This is what it says. Here's a verse. That through death, he might, talking about Jesus, he might render powerless. What I want you to focus on is right here. He who had the power of death, that is who? The devil. The old devil had the power of death. Now, no person can die unless God who is ultimately in charge. But what happened was, because man sinned and death was a result of that sin, old Satan had the power of death. And he brought the fear of death and he controlled men on the basis of their fear of death. And he had brought death into this world because man had fallen in that temptation and allowed sin to creep in and given him dominion over the world. And therefore, he had the power of death. The power of death. But bless God, when Jesus went to the cross and when he came forth from the grave, he took over that authority. He took those keys back. He is in charge of death and of Hades. Well, look what it says in Romans. You can look these up when you get home. And these are just parts of the verse. But I want to show you why it is that, that death reigned at that time. And listen to what it says in Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Nevertheless, death, here's that word what? Reigned. Whenever sin entered the world, death began, began to reign over men. It reigned over men from the time of Adam to Moses. When the law came, it just added more sin because the law said, don't do it. And men were breaking the law and they just kept on sinning and kept on sinning in regard to that. And, and death began to reign. I, I want to tell you something. It's not fun for death to reign in your life. Amen. That's not a fun place to live. That's what it says in Romans 5, 17 through 21. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, so then as through one man's disobedience, the many were made slaves 
that as sin reigned in death. See, my friend, before Jesus came, death reigned, sin reigned, it ruled because of the transgressions of our forefathers, but also because of the transgression of our own lives. And death reigned over us. Death controlled us. That was our state of existence. That's who we are. He goes on and says the rest of the story, though. I like the rest of the story. Do y'all, Joe, you remember you used to listen to Paul Harvey when he'd say the rest of the story? Well, there's a rest of the story in this. Death reigned because of our sin. But look what else happened. Listen to what it says. Go back to that verse, Hebrews 2, 14. I want you to see a different part this time. I had you to underline where it says him who had the power of death. But now I want you to see that through death, Jesus might render powerless the devil. Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) Death no longer reigns over our lives. It does not reign over your life. It doesn't have to control your life. Why? Because Jesus rendered it powerless. Listen to some verse of scripture that tell us the rest of the story from Romans 5, 17 through 21. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will, circle this word, reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know about you, but I want to reign in life with Jesus, and I want grace to reign in my life rather than death reigning in my life. Amen? You want Jesus to reign in your life? Do you want grace? That's how you escaped it. That's what Jesus did. By his gift to you, now grace is reigning in your life, and Jesus is reigning in your life. What a blessing. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. It says, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's the last enemy. Jesus putting all things under his feet, and the last one is going to be death. Bless the Lord. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and following. Death is swallowed up in victory. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is writing about there, it's really interesting. Paul's writing about the actual experience of death. He said, you know, we're all afraid of death and we're afraid what death can bring. But says when we get there, when we actually have that, we're going to realize that Man, death wasn't bad. <laughs> death was swallowed up in victory. There is no sting in death for the child of God. There is no anything to fear in death for a child of God. Why? Because all of that has been won. All of that has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who set us free in Jesus. Well, what do keys represent? It says, Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. We see that he's had, he, through his life and sacrifice, he paid the price, set us free from death, set us free from having to worry about hell as our punishment. What do keys represent? Keys represent authority. They're symbols of authority, control, power, privilege. If I have a set of keys, that means I have the privilege of opening up my house if, if one of them fits, right? 
If I set a keys to the car, I can go out to the car and open it up and crank the car. Keys represent an authority, a privilege, an opportunity, a power that I possess. And therefore, it says, Jesus has this power, this authority, this privilege. After the resurrection, Jesus proclaimed, all authority has been given to me where? In heaven and on earth. How much is all authority? Sufficient. Amen? It's sufficient. He's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The keys of Hades, Hades was the place of death. Hades had two dwelling places. Two dwelling places. One was called paradise. That was the place where the the dead, righteous dead went to stay until actually Jesus would come, pay the price on the cross, and they'd be able to go into a place called heaven. All right. Couldn't go to Jesus till Jesus paid the sacrifice, but they were in a place of righteous dead called paradise. That's why the, the thief on the cross, what did Jesus say? Today you shall be with me in paradise. That was the place of the righteous dead. In, in Hades also, there was the place of the unrighteous dead. It was called Gehenna. Gehenna was a place of torment. Gehenna was a place of punishment and pain. It's literally the idea of the trash heap, the trash heap where they carried out from Jerusalem and would throw into this. And the fire was always burning to always burn the trash. The unquenchable fire is the idea. So here is the picture of in Hades of a place of the righteous dead and a place of the unrighteous dead. And a chasm would be in between them. Jesus tells about that in Luke 16. In Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, you've heard the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Haven't you heard that story? And Jesus tells the story about the rich man who was unrighteous, Lazarus who was righteous. They both died. The rich man went to a place of torment, Gehenna, and Lazarus went to the bosom of Abraham, remember? And the rich man said across there, said, hey, send somebody and tell my family not to come or help me to get across it. And it says there's a chasm that separates you that cannot be gone over. There's no way once you're in that place of torment, there's no way that you can cross over. Well, send somebody to tell my family not to ever come. He says, if they wouldn't believe the prophets, they're not going to believe them. Oh, if somebody came from the dead, no, they wouldn't. If they will not believe the word of God, they will not be transformed if somebody even came from the dead. Jesus describes vividly what Hades was like. A place of torment, a place of blessing. Paradise and Gehenna. Two distinct places. A place of reward, a place of torment. All right? But here's what it says. Jesus has the keys to it. (laughs) He has authority over it. He has authority over it. He has authority over the place of the unrighteous dead. And he has authority over the place of the righteous dead. He has all authority because he has the keys of death and of Hades. I'll tell you one of the fun things you're going to see later in the book of Revelation. Is Jesus walks around and he's got this set of keys. And on one of those set of keys, he has the, he has the key to the abyss. The abyss. I don't know... Uh, All of what the abyss is, but it's a place of eternal punishment. It's a place powerful enough to hold the devil. Amen? The abyss is someplace sounding like I don't want to go. But you know what happens? Over in Revelation 20, whenever 
God gives uh, the, the command in Revelation 20. It says that Jesus gives the angels one of those keys. And that's the keys to the abyss. And that angel goes, one angel now, that angel goes, opens up the top to the abyss. He grabs old Satan. I love this, all right? One angel. God didn't have to do it. Just an angel. That one angel grabs Satan, the old dragon, chains him up, locks him up in that chain, and throws him into the abyss. He doesn't just put him in the abyss. He throws him in the abyss. He is so much more powerful than Satan. He is in charge of him, and he will be in that abyss for a thousand years than the thousand-year reign of Jesus, that millennial reign. And then he'll come out for a season, and then he'll be thrown into the eternal fire where he will stay forever. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. Amen? I'm looking forward to seeing that angel just whip the tar out of Satan. And whenever he's whipping the tar out, I'm going to say, man, you deserve it. Get him, angel. I'm not big enough to whip him, but God's got an angel big enough to whip him. And if I could, I'd whip him. So I'll just let the angel do it for me. Amen? And to throw into the abyss and to lock him up, and he's gone. We'll have to deal with him for a thousand years. And then after that, we won't ever have to deal with him forever and ever and ever. Thank God that Jesus Christ has the keys of death and Hades. And he is in authority. Jesus is ruler over the unseen world. Whether souls are doomed, are in torment, are glorified and in paradise, he is king over all. That's what he means when he says, I have the keys. I have the authority of death and Hades. One other thing he says, he tells them the outline, the outline of the revelation. That's what he tells John. Look at verse 19. Here's the outline. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these three things are these things. A three-point outline for this book. Chapter 1 is what you've seen. So we just finished chapter 1. We just finished the first part of the outline. The second thing he says, and tell them, write down, reveal to them the things that are. The things that are. That's what's going to happen in the very last verse of chapter 20 and all of chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 1, and all of chapter 2 and 3. You know what that's about? That's about the church. It's, it's Jesus writing to seven churches in Asia Minor, but it's Jesus writing to all the churches. He's not just going to talk about the church, those individual churches. He's talking about all churches of all ages. Because, see, the things that are is the church age. The church age, I told you, goes until Jesus raptures the church. But what we are in right now is the church age. And what he says, write the things that are. He says, write these things that are going to be in chapters 2 and 3. Because that's the way things are right now in the church age. But then he says, the third part is to write the things that will happen after this. And that's chapters 4 through 22. Those are the things that happen after the church age. After the church experience. After the rapture. Of the church. That's the outline of the book. Jesus said, Write it down. 
Tell it. Reveal it. Now, today, friend, listen, I hope you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I hope you've let him save you from your sin. I hope you've let him be Lord of your life. I hope that you know the one who has all authority. I hope you know the one who's the last, first and the last, and he's alive forevermore. I hope you know the one who died for your sin and paid the price for your sin. I hope you know the one who's ultimately in charge of all things. Do you know him? Not you need to. And you need to let him set you free from the dominion and rulership of death or sin in your life. And know him as Lord and Savior. And I pray that you'll do it soon. Because we're living in the time when it says the things that are. We're living in the church age. We're looking at the throne of grace. And we see the mercy seat. And God says all are welcome. Come. Come. Let me save you. You're invited to the feast. Come. But there will be a day, and it could be today, that whenever the rapture of the church happens, the church age will be over, and that opportunity will be over, and your destiny will be settled. It's not where you want to be. You need to give your heart to Jesus today. You know him as Lord and Savior. And I pray that God would grab your heart and do that, even today in this invitation time. Child of God, you ought to feel good. If you're in a relationship with Jesus and he says, this is who I am, and you know him personally, and he's Lord and Savior of your life, you ought to walk out of here on a cloud knowing that you have that relationship with Jesus. You ought to be encouraged. You ought to be rejoicing in your Savior and your Lord and all that he is. If you're here and you need a church home and God's spoken to you, wants to be a part of our church, we welcome you. The invitation time is for us to do what Christ would want us to do. That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon dash series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at parkermemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.